Let's open our Bibles uh, to the book of Colossians this morning. The book of Colossians. We finish our series that we have entitled um, Living in the Shadow of the Cross. And uh, we've been looking at this series uh, looking at the cross, we spent the time coming up to Easter and uh, just a couple weeks after Easter to look at the cross anew. We've talked about how the cross is uh, the key figure, the key um, symbol of Christianity and how we as Christians uh, must never grow tired of seeking to understand the cross and the measure of love that was shown uh, to us through Christ's death and burial and resurrection that took place around that cross. And today we look at one more aspect of Christ's atoning death on that cross where we look at the peace of the cross. I was telling uh, one of our elders, I'm going to speak on the peace of the cross. He says, I, don't th- I didn't think we were into relics. I didn't think we were into traditional things. What part of the cross are you going to talk about? What piece of wood are you going to speak about? I said, not that kind of piece, but a different piece. You probably know what elder that is already. I'll leave that alone. But uh, I want to speak on the subject of peace. You know, we live in a world where there is very little peace. We live in a world uh, that it seems that there's great trouble. I was watching CNN yesterday and I was blown away by the, uh, the ticker, if you will, at the bottom of the screen. There was nothing positive that came uh, in the way of news under that, uh, on that ticker. There was word about uh, a deadly now flu bug going around. There was talk about uh, people that had lost their life in India and Iraq. There was talk about uh, North Korea restarting its nuclear program. It seems like in our world today that there's very little peace to go around. We as a people in this world have sought peace for a long time. And when we live in a world that is full of so much turmoil... Peace is so hard to find. It was never harder for anyone to find and to keep than for a man named Neville Chamberlain. If you're old enough or if you know history, Neville Chamberlain was the Prime Minister of Britain right before the outset of uh, World War II. And Neville Chamberlain was what people called a pursuer of peace. And he spent much time trying to deliberate between him, Britain, and of course uh, Germany to stop World War II from taking place. And his prized peace accord was signed at Munich, Germany. He had gone with the French and they went to go and seek a peace with this man named Adolf Hitler. And Neville Chamberlain comes back to London and he's all excited with him coming back from Munich, he has a signed agreement called the Munich Pact, the Munich Agreement that said that Hitler had no intentions of invading any other country, but all he wanted to do was create a greater nationalism when it came to Germany. And Chamberlain comes back and he's so excited that he tells his wife the, um, through the annals of history, I will be known as the one who brought the great peace. When he got off the plane uh, at London, he announced that peace has come in our time. Well, just shortly, six months later, Hitler would invade Poland and he would throw the world into the Second World War. In fact, there was no peace. There was never a peace. 
And never Chamberlain proved to be a prophet like that which is written, which, jo- uh, which Jeremiah the prophet warned us about when he said that prophets in his time would go around saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Rumors of peace in our world today are being declared from all corners of our world. Whether it's in the Balkans, whether it's in the Middle East or Northern Ireland, we talk about peace. And statesmen talk all the time about how they are going to bring peace to a people. How they are going to bring peace to the world. They would talk about peace treaties. But I'm amazed now that you don't hear about peace treaties, but now you hear a far less um, stringent terminology where you hear the word a roadmap to peace or a peace process. You see, I think our politicians and statesmen have learned that peace is harder to come by than just signing a document. And so what they say now is it's a process. And what I've learned is there's a lot of process but there is little peace. We long for peace in our world, don't we? For many different reasons. We pursue peace because in the very nature of peace, it speaks of better days, a time of fulfillment, a time of contentment. Eulogizing the death of this man, Neville Chamberlain, Winston Churchill, the prime minister who would take over for Chamberlain, said this, and I think it is true of us as humanity It fell to never Chamberlain, Churchill said, one of the supreme crises of the world to be contradicted by events. Chamberlain was to be disappointed in his hopes, to be deceived and cheated by a wicked man. But what were these hopes in which he was disappointed? What were these wishes in which he was frustrated? What was the faith that was abused? Surely for Chamberlain, they were among the most noble and benevolent instincts of the human heart. For he loved peace, he toiled for peace, and he strived to achieve peace. And he did all in the pursuit of peace. And what did he gain? A war. You know, Churchill, I know not speaking about humanity, speaks to the very essence of us as humans. We long for peace. We strive for peace. We pursue peace. But there is no peace to be found. The reason why there is no peace is because we long uh, for peace, but we have been deceived. Not by a human dictator named Hitler, but we have been deceived by the devil. You see, a long time ago in a garden where there was total peace and total love and fellowship, Man and woman decided to listen to the devil instead of God. And in pursuing uh, that pact with the devil, they lost the peace and fellowship that they had with God forever. And it takes Jesus Christ coming to the cross. You see, maybe today you're dealing with issues of peace in your life. We just, uh, in fact, we have an equipping you class that talks about financial peace. Maybe it's finances today that are causing you turmoil. You're desiring peace. Maybe it's peace in your marital relationship. That there's an ongoing war between you and your spouse. Maybe it's peace with your children. There seems to be a war that you're engaged with. You didn't know how it started. You don't know uh, who's to blame, but there's a war going on. Maybe it's inner turmoil. Maybe you find yourself at at war with yourself, at war with some of the decisions you made, at at war with with, uh, evil thoughts and, and thoughts of despair and depression. 
You see, the reason for all those issues of warfare is because we are not at peace with God. The reason why we have those secondary issues that we wage war with isn't because we married the wrong person or our children are just uh, incapable or incapable of, of being uh, the way they need to be. Or maybe our, our hearts or our, our psyche are just not right. None of those are the issues. They're secondary. They're symptoms to our war with God. And so our text tells us today that Christ came and he came and he came to uh, give peace through his shed blood on the cross. Paul is writing to a church in Colossae. And in chapter 1 of Colossians, he articulates the supremacy of Jesus Christ. The idea of Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and on, is in essence a pep rally to say Jesus is the one. He is not just a, a prophet, but he is the Son of God, in which the fullness of God dwells in him. He is the uh, one that pleases the Father. He's the firstborn over all creation. And Paul goes on and articulates that Jesus is the best of the best. There are seven supremacies that Paul talks about when he speaks about Jesus. So let's look to that text this morning. And within those supremacies, we see what comes when Jesus uh, redeems us back to himself. I'd ask that you would stand for the reading of God's word as we look to Colossians chapter 1, verses 15. I'll go through verse 22. This is what Paul says to us this morning. Speaking of Jesus, Paul says he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. Notice what he says in verse 19. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Father God, we come before you. We have looked to your word and now we ask that you would open our eyes to understand what your word has to say. Once again, we come to that cross, that old rugged cross, Father. And today we learn that through that shed blood on the cross, we can have peace. Peace with you, peace of mind in this world, and a sense of assurance that you love us, that you have paid our sins for us, and that one day you will come back to take us home to be with you forever. Lord, give us that peace. We long for that peace. This world is hungry for that kind of peace. 
So, Lord, we ask for it in full measure in Christ Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Well, if we live in a time of turmoil, a time of struggle, how do we gain this kind of peace? How do we begin to experience this peace? Well, to do that, we must ask, answer a couple questions. The first question we need to ask is, if I'm at odds with God, how do I get right with God? If there's a war between God and I, how do I make right in that way? The second question is, if I don't have peace with God, how do I get it? If Paul is telling me that peace was given to us through the shed blood on the cross, how do I then receive that peace? And finally, how am I to live in light of that peace? If I'm called to live in light of the cross, to live in the shadow of the cross, then I should be able to know how to live in light of that. To answer that, that is what we want to accomplish today. So if we want to experience peace, then we must understand that peace comes, first of all, in your outlines, when we remember, when we remember the reasons we need it. When we remember the reasons that we need it. I don't know about you, but it seems to me that peace is a pretty boring thing. The very definition of peace is the state of tranquility, the state of being tranquil. For an ADD, high-energy guy, peace seems like no fun. It seems like something should be happening, something that is missing. And yet peace, what we seem to want and desire, is a spirit of tranquility, of a quietness where there is no uh, forces uh, waging war with one another. Now, we rarely think about peace. We rarely think about it unless there's an absence of that peace. I'll give you an, under, uh, an idea about that, a thought. Last weekend, uh, I hadn't thought much about uh, the digestion process in my life until my body said there was no peace. We take it for granted, right? We go on through our days. We don't think about anything after it goes into our mouth unless it tells us, I don't want to be here. And then we think about it. We don't think about peace in uh, our lives with our family unless our child comes to us and at the top of their voice yells out to us, I don't want to live here anymore, mom or dad. And then all of a sudden we desire peace. We desire peace in our marriages uh, only when there's an absence of it. And yet it seems that the peace is already there for us as Christians. We just need to understand why we need it and why Jesus brought it to us. The Bible makes it very clear throughout Scripture that we are living at war with God. In our unregenerate state, we find ourselves being enemies of God. Well, how do we see that being lived out in our lives? Well, the first reason that we see that we need peace is given in the testimony of Scripture. Write that down in your outlines. The testimony of Scripture. The Bible speaks throughout its numerous texts many different times about us going to war with God. Notice just the verse uh, beyond uh, our key verse this morning, verse 21. Look at what Paul says. He says, you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior. What Paul is saying is, is hey, you weren't friends with God in your unregenerate state. 
You, you're not, you weren't a friend as you were living your life, doing what you were doing. You weren't friends with God. You were an enemy of God. You were alienated with God. Paul talks about this in another passage. Turn in your Bibles to uh, the book of Ephesians. Go a couple books back from Colossians to Ephesians chapter 2. Why were we alienated from God? Well, the reason why is because we had become loyal to someone that God doesn't want us to be loyal to. As we were sinners, Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 and 2 tells us why this came to be. It says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Now notice what he says. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Likewise, like the rest, we were by nature objects of God's wrath. There's no love in that statement. There's no, hey, I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay in that statement. What Paul says is, hey, when you were dead in your trespasses and sin, prior to you coming to know Jesus Christ, you were an enemy of God. Why? Because you followed your sinful nature. You followed the gratifying uh, desires of your heart. So who did you follow? If you weren't following God, he says, okay, while you were doing that, you were following the prince of the kingdom of the air. It's a picture of the, of the devil, Satan. And what is happening is, is we've got a choice. You're going to serve one of two masters. You're either going to serve God in holiness, in upright living, or you're going to pursue the devil. The Bible says, not just a few of us, but all of us were this way. We followed the devil in his war against God. One more passage of Scripture. Turn in the Bible to Romans chapter 5 for a moment. Romans chapter 5. If you're in Ephesians, keep going back to your uh, left to the book of Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, verse 10. Notice what Paul says again on this idea of warfare with God. This is what he says. Since, uh, let's see here. For if when we were God's enemies in verse 10, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more have we been reconciled? Shall we be saved through his life? Paul is saying something that is so very important, which we'll address in a couple moments. But he says, first of all, we are enemies of God. The justice that John spoke about in his song, the wrath that is spoken about. You ask, why can God be a God of wrath? The reason why is because he's dealing with his enemies. Now you say, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. How did I become an enemy of God? You did the moment you came out of your mother's womb because we in our infancy, in, in the womb of our mothers, were born in sin. And that sin is because of Adam and Eve and the result of the fall. And yet we come out, just like Adam and Eve, hell-bent on doing what? Sinning. Going against what God's Word has to say. And so what happens? We become enemies of God. Now you would say, Tim, that is a downer message. This isn't any good. Just because you didn't feel good this week doesn't mean you need to lay it all on us. 
The good news is, as Paul says, that we don't have to be enemies of God, but that God himself did something. So we see that Paul speaks according to the testimony of the Scripture, and he says, all right, the Bible makes it clear you're an enemy of God. Well, you sit there and say, well, I don't believe it. I don't believe what the Scripture has to say. Well, then Paul talks about something else in his um, writings. We see the troubled conscience, our troubled conscience. Why are we at uh, war with God? Or what's one of the reasons why we see that we're at war with God is our troubled conscience. Every time you feel guilty... Every time that you feel a pain or a struggle within your life, within the workings of your conscience where you lack peace, a sense of depression or hopelessness are all reminders that we are not at peace with God. Blaine Pascal, the great philosopher of uh, a couple hundred years ago, spent much of his time writing on what he called Pascal's wager where he spoke about that the troubled conscience is evidence that there is a God. Because why would we have trouble with our consciences if we ourselves are at the apex of creation? So there must be something innate within us that causes us to have struggles and guilt and pain within our consciences that say that we have offended a supreme being. All those times that you have felt times of hopelessness, pain and struggle are within the reasons found in that troubled consciousness because you're at war, because your body's at war. The Bible even says that creation is groaning. And while creation doesn't have a conscience in and of itself, it knows that it is in conflict with God waiting for its redemption, the book of Romans says. The final reason that we see that we need peace is the turmoil in our relationships with others. Have you ever fought with somebody? Have you ever felt someone had uh, uh, taken advantage of you? Have you ever involved yourself in in bitter or angry thoughts towards another individual? Have you found yourself growing more and more angry with others? Do you find yourself where fellowship is broken? All of those times are as a result, not just because of the people you live with. Some of us think that way. We think that the reason why I get in all the fights is because it's someone else's fault. It's their fault. My sons who argue with one another at times will always go back and forth and say, what is going on? Well, we wouldn't have to fight if he would just do what he's supposed to. And yet we as adults do that as well. Well, I wouldn't have to get angry. I wouldn't have to get mad. There would be no breaking of peace if the people around me would just do what they're supposed to do. The turmoil that we have, the reason why we fight wars and speak harshly and accuse and fight with our spouses and because we destroy and kill is not because of other people, but is because of our innate war that is being waged within us. It's amazing that after Adam and Eve sin and are at war with God, what do we see not too long thereafter? The murder of one brother at the hands of another. Every fight, every bickering, every involvement, engagement, and hostility that we have with another person finds its beginnings in our hostility towards God. We need peace. We need peace, not just because the Bible tells us if that wasn't enough to, to bring us to that point, but because we see it in our world. We are a people at war. Well, what are we to do? How are we to experience peace? The next thing that we see is that we can receive peace when we receive the reconciliation 
that brings it. Look at your text again in, in Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1 speaks about this reconciliation. He says in verse 20, start in verse 19, For God was pleased to have His fullness dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things. That's an important phrase there, that He would reconcile to Himself. Well, how would He do it? By making peace through His blood shed on the cross. How do we receive peace? In a world of war. How do we receive peace when we spiritually are at odds with our Creator? The answer is reconciliation. This is an important Greek word. Apokalatazo is the word. I probably butchered it pretty good. But uh, this Greek word literally means that Christ, through His shed blood on the cross, totally, completely, and fully takes enemies of His and restores them. Not just to be, okay, hey, you know what we do with our children, they're fighting with one another and we create a truce and nobody's happy. We just send them to one room and another to another room and we say no talking, no nothing, and we think that we've achieved peace. That is not what God did. But God went and He sent His Son to die on the cross, which we'll talk about in a moment. But what He does in doing so is He brings peace. He restores us. Now, here's the amazing thing within the nature of God. When God reconciles, He doesn't reconcile friends to become adopted sons and daughters of His. He reconciles His enemies. Let me ask you a question. Who in your life do you, in, in your Christian terminology, not like very much, in your fleshly tendencies, do you really hate? I mean, they make your blood boil. When they walk into a room, even if they're not talking to you, you just you despise the very times that they're around you. Now take that, multiply it to an infinite realm, and then say that not only would you die for them, but that you would adopt them into your family that you would give them all that you have, all the riches, all the blessings that, that you have to offer. You would pour out everything you have of love and charity towards them. That is the word reconciliation. We are enemies of God. And God says, because of His great love and His mercy, while we were still sinners, He says, Jesus, go and die for them. So that they don't need to no longer be enemies of mine, but they can be my son and my daughter. Well, how does this happen? First of all, it involves a process between God and his people. It involves a process between God and his people. If you do a quick word study of reconciliation, God's reconciliation or reconciling of himself to man, we must always understand that God takes the initiative in this reconciliation process. We never, please hear me, we never go and look. There's nowhere in Scripture where it says man thought up one day, hey, I'm at war with God, I better fix that. What can I do, God, to fix my relationship with you? The Bible says, while we were still sinners, while we were still enemies of God, another passage says, while we were still powerless, Christ died. Another passage of Scripture says, while we were still ungodly, that Christ died for the ungodly. How we were doing exactly what we were not supposed to do, 
Christ died for us. He created and started this ministry of reconciliation. And He gives it to us. Now, we receive peace when we bow the knee to Jesus Christ. Not just a little peace. At that moment that we are justified before Christ, we are at peace with God. Put your finger in Colossians for a moment and turn back to uh, Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. I want to make sure that we understand this. One of the uh, byproducts of our salvation at the moment of of being justified is peace with God. Notice what Paul says in Romans 5 verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, what does it say? Help me out. We have peace with who? God. God justifies us. And he doesn't say, hey, uh, now you can try to find peace. Now there's an opportunity, now that we've dealt with some of our hostility towards one another, that maybe we can now find peace. No, he says, but when we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God. Who does it come through? It doesn't come through man. It comes through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. We have peace with God. If you're a child of God here this morning, if you have bowed the knee in submission and allegiance to Christ, then I will tell you something. You can have spiritual peace with God. You should. It's one of the great blessings of salvation. But it's a process. Understand that it's a process. One of the things that we see if you did a word study of reconciliation that God does is it is an ongoing thing. We don't all of a sudden just one day experience the peace of God. Positionally, we do the moment we come to know Christ. But it's an ongoing uh, work within us. Why? Because even though we are no longer at odds with God, even though we are no longer enemies of God, we still disobey Him. And I don't know about you, but it seems my peace usually runs out when I start living for myself. How many of us have found ourselves uh, in sin and our world is falling apart around us? How many of us have made decisions in our lives uh, that have brought great calamity to our families, to our marriages, to our employment, to our testimony, to our fellowship with God? Why? Because sin brings hostility, even for us as believers. Just because we have peace with God, that's a positional thing. But that doesn't mean we'll always experience it. So what does the Bible say? It says live upright and holy lives. Why? Because not just because uh, that's good and that makes God happy. Because it will go well with you. One of the things I learned as, as a teenager too late in the game was that when mom and dad were happy, Tim was happy. I miss that as a teenager. I miss that uh, part of orientation. Because I thought when mom and dad were mad, I would talk my way out of it. And what I learned late in my teenage years was that when I made mom and dad angry, life wasn't going well for me. It meant that I was in my room. It meant privileges were taken away. Why? Because I would disobey what they say and pay the consequences of that discipline. Some of you today think that because you're a Christian, you should have peace with God. 
But I will tell you, you cannot live for the devil and have peace with God no matter what you've been justified from. Your position, yes, God no longer views you as an enemy, but that does not mean you're just going to experience this awesome peace. We pray, Lord, give us the peace that passes all understandings. How do you do that? Don't pray for that until you're willing to live like that. Live for Christ, you'll experience peace. You live for yourself, you're on your own. Oh, God won't treat you like his enemy. You won't be an object of his wrath. But I can assure you, your life is going to be very stormy. It's a process. It's a process that calls us to holiness. It calls us to live like Christ. The second thing we see is that this reconciliation required a punishment on the cross. Notice in our text, it says, For him to reconcile all things to himself, he had to do it by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The way that this peace was ratified, which if you, if you know anything about peace treaties, there has to be a ratification of them. The two uh, individuals have to ratify and say, yes, this peace contract is valid. But when it comes to reconciliation with God and man, it is a one-sided peace treaty. Because what happens is, is God says, all right, I'm going to send my son Jesus to die. And the blood that was shed on the cross is going to reconcile you. It's an exchange. The idea of this word reconciliation in Greek um, days was that you would give me a dollar and I would exchange that dollar with you and I would give you four quarters. We received the same thing, right? You got one dollar bill, but uh, you gave me that and I gave you in exchange what was needed to meet that one dollar bill in four quarters. What Jesus did when he went to the cross is he exchanged with us. What was the great exchange? Jesus took all our sin and he gave us his love and perfection on the cross. That's the great exchange. You want to know what you brought into this whole reconciliation process? You brought one thing just like I did, your sin. That's it. You didn't bring, Ray, Ray articulated in his prayer. What did we give? What did we bring to the table that attracted God to us? Nothing. It was by his grace and mercy and his love. And so Christ is sent to the cross and he sheds his blood. For what? So that God's wrath against us would be appeased. That God would be able to look and say, I'm no longer at, at war with Tim, Tim is my son. And yes, there's times of discipline, but I'm not at war with him. He's not an object of wrath. The Bible says that we were by nature object of God's wrath. But because of God's great love for us, we became objects of his what? Mercy and love. What an exchange that takes place on the cross. Notice how it had to take place. Once you were alienated, verse 21, from God and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish. And listen to what he says, free from accusation. 
You want to know where peace with God is all about? It is all about that we are now standing before God without blemish and free from accusation. I don't have to worry about standing before God and God saying, let me tell you how you have gone against me. You're free of accusation because when Christ or when God looks at me, he doesn't see me at war with him, but he sees me reconciled to him through the blood of Jesus Christ. And he says, there's no accusation because you're justified. This is the beauty of some of these huge theological words that we say are boring. These are the very essence of our hope, the very essence of who we are. What happens if we don't have that peace treaty? Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews just for a moment. Hebrews chapter 10. If you're in the book of Colossians, go to your right. About halfway between the end of the Bible and Colossians, you'll find the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10. You're saying, Tim, I, I don't need peace with God. I don't, I don't need that. I can, I can do it on my own. I can figure this out on my own. Well, the Bible talks about that. And the Bible tells us about you who think that way. Notice what it says in verse 27, chapter 10, verse 27. What can we expect? Hebrews chapter 10 says, If we deliberately keep on sinning after we receive the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left. But what? Only a fearful expectation of judgment. If you're a child of God today, you do not need to worry about judgment when it comes to whether you're saved or not. You're free from accusation. The, ch the person that is not saved has a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire, listen, that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? God says, you know what? If you don't have a peace treaty with me, look out. And I'm not trying to be fire and brimstone, old Baptist preacher. But that's what the Word of God says. Look out. There's a fearful expectation of hell. So go to the cross. Embrace the cross. Embrace the punishment that was supposed to be yours that Jesus Christ took for you. The final thing I want you to see in this text, in this point here, is that this reconciliation pleased God. I never saw this before, but in studying this text anew, it came into... Uh, focus. Look at what Paul says in verse 19. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. The idea there is that God was um, approved of. He gave hearty approval to have Jesus become a man and not just be any man, but to be fully God and to be fully man. The idea there is the theological term, the hypostatic union of Jesus Christ. That he was 100% God and that he was 100% man. That he would fully, his whole nature and all that he is would dwell bodily in human form. God was pleased with that. But notice what I never had seen before. 
that he was pleased to have all his fullness in him dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things. Here's an amazing thought. God was pleased to send Jesus Christ to the cross. Why? Why would, Christ, why would God be pleased to send his one and only son to the cross? Because of what it would do. It would redeem. It would reconcile. It would bring us from being enemies of God, at war with God, to be sons and daughters of His. This word please literally means to approve of, to think well of, to take pleasure in. Not only was it God's idea, remember it's His initiative, He's the one that started this thing, this reconciliation process, but He absolutely loves it. That's why He goes And this is where we see it throughout Scripture. That's why he leaves the 99 to go get the one. That's why when the prodigal runs away, and the father goes running when he sees the prodigal come back. Why? Because Jesus Christ is in a love relationship to seeking and saving us who are lost. He loves it. He loves the reconciliation process. And the father says, it pleases me. I amen that. I love that. I give hearty approval to that. It brings joy to him. No wonder the angels celebrate when one soul comes to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. They celebrate in heaven because God loves saving people. God loves being at peace with his creation. That's what he's going to do one day. You go to the very end of the Bible, and what will he do? He will bring peace to the world that he created once and for all because that's what he wants, and that's what he desires. So what does this reconciliation bring? Paul says it brings peace. God made peace for you to experience. He didn't talk about it, but he made it. For the child of God here today, we are no longer at war with him. Live in light of that. You're no longer at war with God. You no longer are under the accusation of being God's enemies. You now live in peace and tranquility with God. Not just today, but forever. And it's there. And the peace of God isn't just some warm and touchy, a warm and cuddly feeling that, that we have when we think about God. But it is something that should revolutionize the way that we live. The peace of the cross should give us an assurance. We are no longer at war with God. For those that struggle with this idea of, of being eternally secure in your faith, understand this. If there was nothing you brought to reconcile you to God, Okay, think about this. If there was nothing you brought to reconcile you to God, that there would be peace with you, what in the world could you do that would create you not to be at peace with God once God has given it? Think about that. If you didn't do anything to gain that peace, what could you do to get rid of that peace? Nothing, because it's all on God. What can separate us from the love of God? Nothing. And that should give us the assurance that if we have peace with God, if we have been justified, then that peace that God has given positionally cannot be taken away. Live in light of that. And you will please God because it pleases God, this reconciliation that he brings. So what are we to do with it? 
What is our application this morning? What do you do with a positional message like this? You try to apply it in practical ways, and we're going to do so. How do you experience peace with God? You experience it when you respond by reflecting the peace of the cross to others. Have you experienced the peace of God through the peace of the cross? Then show it to others. I use the word reflecting on purpose. Because we cannot, if you were to say, well, Tim, I'm, I'm a child of God, so how I have peace? You've got this little reservoir of peace within you. And if we just pool our reservoirs of peace together as evangelicals, then we can bring peace to the world. No. Remember, it's God's peace that God gives. We don't have peace within ourselves. There's nothing of peace in who we are. But God gives us peace through the blood that was shed on the cross. So what do we do? We reflect that peace. As God shows us that peace, as God gives us that peace, we reflect it to others. Now that's where it gets hard. I don't like them. They don't do what I want them to do. They're not very nice. I don't want to show peace to my fellow man. But the Bible makes it clear that we are put on a mission, a mission to show that peace. Well, what does this life of reconciliation involve, this idea of reflecting peace? First of all, we see it's a mark of Christianity. It's a mark of Christianity. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5 for a moment. Matthew chapter 5. If you're in Colossians, again, go to your left. Before you get to the Old Testament and a whole bunch of names you've never seen before, you'll find the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 5. Does anybody know what's going on in Matthew chapter 5? We have the sermon on the airplane. Yes, you're all right. The sermon on the airplane. No, the sermon on the mount. And within the sermon on the mount in chapter 5, we see Jesus give what he calls the Beatitudes. These are the kind of attitudes that we need to have. And so he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the hun- those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And blessed are the merciful, for they will show, be shown mercy. And blessed, at the, at the pure, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. But notice what he says in verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called sons of God how do we reflect the peace that we have been given that we are no longer at war with God we make peace in this life we pursue peace Jesus says you want to reflect me you want to be like me be a peacemaker when people revile you you love them. When people hit you, you turn the other cheek. When people steal something from you, you give them more. Now you say, where's the justice in that? You want to reflect Christ? You show peace. That's what Jesus did. I know that goes against the American way, but that's what Christ has called us to. Notice what it says. By being peacemakers, we will be called the sons of God. There's that position again. You live lives of peace. You pursue peace. You'll be called the sons of God. What what I see in that is not just our position, but our advertising to the world. When people speak bad about you and you love them, 
and you pursue peace and you long for peace, people will say, wait a minute, that don't make any sense. That person should be fighting for his rights. That person should be fighting for the injustices. There's something different about that guy. And you can say, I pursue peace because peace has been given to me. Reflect that peace. You want to be known as a peacemaker. We should be wanting to be known as a church, as a peacemaking church. If we preach Christ and a peace that comes from God, and we can't love one another. If we fight one another, what good is it for us to share the good news with the Fox Valley area about Jesus Christ and that you can be at peace with God when we hate our brothers and sisters in Christ and do not pursue peace? I will tell you something. The moment that churches make the decision that they will live at peace with one another is when evangelism really begins to take place. Because the world doesn't experience peace. You bring 500, 600 people together like Village Bible Churches and they see a church that is at peace with one another. You don't see that in the world. When they see a church that loves one another and, and desires to lay down their lives for one another, you don't see that in the world. That is when Village Bible Church will truly begin to evangelize the world. Not when we open our mouths, but when the world sees that we love one another with the love of Christ, that when harsh things are done, when we are wronged, we pursue peace. Village Bible Church, continue. We have been in a time of great peace. Pursue it with all your heart. Number two, it requires a certain mindset towards others. We live in a world where hostility is brewing at all times. And so you have to make a conscience, conscious decision to pursue peace. I like what uh, the message, Eugene Peterson's paraphrase says of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. He says, work at getting along with each other and with God. Otherwise, you will never get so much as a glimpse of God. Your translations would say, make every effort to be at peace. The reason why I like Eugene Peterson's paraphrase is it gives us this idea that it's work. It is not easy for me to live at peace with you. And likewise, you to me. We look at things differently. We like opposite things. We want to see different pursuits in life. We're going to hurt one another. We're going to say things that are going to uh, hurt each other. And the Bible says, make every effort. Work at it. It's not easy to live at peace. Romans chapter 12, turn there for a moment. Maybe you're saying today, Tim, you don't know my situation. You don't know what I've endured. You don't know how bad that person has treated me. How can I live at peace with them? How can I uh, be a peacemaker? Turn to Romans 12, verse 17 and 18. Tim, I want to hurt them. I want to repay them for the evil that they've shown me. I want, to share, I want to see justice prevail. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 12. He says, Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with the people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. Now listen to how we're to do that. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, 
Live at peace with everyone. Don't take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay. What is your job? Live at peace. But it's really hard, Tim. They're pretty, they're pretty bad people. They're wicked people. As far as it depends, not on them, but on you. Pursue peace. Live at peace. So what do you do? What do you do with the wrongs? You don't just uh, uh, brush them under the rug. God, you know I've been wronged. You know I'm being sinned against. It's all yours. Take it. You deal with it. I'm going to let it go. And I'm going to live at peace. And I'm going to let you deal with that. Let you repay evil instead of me. Finally, it involves a ministry of peace. You want to experience the peace of the cross? Then do what it says in 2 Corinthians. Let's turn there just for a moment. We'll close this out. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 throughout. It's a famous verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. We know that verse, but it's within the idea of reconciliation. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. And what did he do? He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. What's the ministry of reconciliation? Here's the message. Here's the ministry. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. How? By not counting men's sins against them. He has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We therefore are Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Now God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Every head up here for a moment. If you've experienced the peace of God through the peace of the cross, then you have a job. It isn't a job that you said, yeah, God, I will do it. But notice what the text says. It has been given to us by God himself. What is it? That we would be his ambassadors. To say what? Just as we have been reconciled from God, God is reconciling man to himself. You want to experience peace? Then be a proclaimer of peace to the world. Proclaim the peace of God by announcing to the world that Christ came and he was, there was no sin in him, but he became sin so that you and I might become the righteousness of God. And when we express that, that is the only answer that the world has to being a world of peace. That is the only answer that will mend marriages. That is the only answer that will bring a wayward, wayward child home. That's the only answer that will help a troubled heart is the peace that God brings. Because as I already articulated, it is the peace of God that transcends all understanding. You want to see peace in your world? You want to see peace in your family? You want to see peace in your marriage? Then you become one who embraces the peace that God has given you and you reflect it to those around you. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you. And Lord, above all, we thank you that you have reconciled us to yourself. 
Father, I thank you for the opportunity we have, not because we deserved it, not because we um, uh, received it as a wealth of, of our good doing, but because you loved us and cared for us. That you gave us this peace. You reconciled us. You made the great exchange to reconcile us to yourself. Now, Lord, if we believe that as we do, then let us live that out. Let us live it out to those who have hurt us, to those who are hostile towards us. Let us live that out to those who need to hear about the peace of God so that they may no longer be at war with God, but at peace with you and their fellow man. Give us the spirit to be able to do this, the power and the strength that we need so that we may please you by living out this ministry that you've called us to in Christ Jesus. Amen.